This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing the best of my Times radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times radio app. Many, many thanks to Patrick McGuire for looking after the place over the last week or so. While I was crossing a quite choppy Atlantic, it turned out, I thought I had sea legs. I don't. Anyway, we had a lovely time with the Times and Sunday Times Cheltenham Literature Festival at Sea, with Alan Titchmarsh and Linda LaPlante, and Patterson Joseph, and Kate Moss, the author, and many others. I think she must be sick of that by now, people point out. Anyway, we had a lot of fun and Daniel Finkston and Hugo Rifkin were on board as well. So, in fact, we'll hear from Danny in a minute for when you, with a little bit of how to win. But coming up on today's episode, our big thing today, the art of parliamentary sketch writing. Tom Peck has just joined the Times as the new sketch writer. We'll find out what he's got planned and how he goes about writing a sketch. We'll get some tips from him on an old hand at these things, former Times sketch writer Matthew Paris. That's coming up in just a moment. But as it's a Tuesday, it must be a How to Win Day. The full episode of How to Win an Election available wherever you're listening to this. But a little teaser for you. It's time for this. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Strike up the band. I said to him, I don't want to win a prize for an advert and lose in a landslide, and both of those things happened. I did have Nick Clegg at my wedding. I think it was the vicar's happiest moment. I mean, isn't it absolutely wonderful? You can't remember the words, Peter. Ah, here we are again then. I'm Matt Chorley and this is How to Win an Election, your insider's guide to the big political year ahead. Uh, joined in the studio this week by new Labour mastermind Peter Maddis. Peter, how are you? I'm very well, Matt. It's nice to be back. If you, uh, we'll, we'll come to your, your singing or otherwise in a moment. Uh, Polly McKenzie's here, former director of policy for Nick Clegg and the Coalition. How are you, Polly? It's my son's 10th birthday today. I've already Happy baked birthday. a cake and built a trampoline. Wow. Yeah. A full-size one. 
Uh, where I mean, what is a full size trampoline? I mean, it's not like Olympic size or anything. No, okay. Six by four. Right, okay, good. We're 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 now at the stage of almost thinking we can get rid of the trampoline and reclaim a massive part of our garden. Lucky so, you. Yeah, best of luck with that. And joining us live from New York, New York, uh, Tory Brainbox, Daniel Finkelstein. Good morning, Danny. Good morning. Yes, we're hoping to do that as well. Um, I, I suppose you're having a polling bounce. Is that right, Polly? Oh, very good. Danny's in New York because he was on the uh, the cruise uh, from Southampton to uh, to New York that I was also on, but I came home to make sure we were here to do this. Now, uh, if you want to get in touch with us at any point about the podcast, you can email us at howtowin at thetimes.co.uk, howtowinatthetimes.co.uk. Uh, and last week on the podcast, we brought you this memorable moment of our very own Peter Manson singing... Meet the challenge, make the change. Challenge, make the change. Beautiful. I love that. Yes, and Pete wanted us to try and find the singer. So Sean got in touch and said uh, it was very apt that Matt Jolly is on a cruise as Philip Brown has been a cruise singer as well. So it turns out Philip Brown sang yes. Meet, Meet, Meet the Challenge, Make the Change uh, at uh, a Labour event in 1986. <laughs> so we managed to track him down. I contacted Philip's agent, Wendy Scozaro uh, from Felix de Wolf Limited and asked if he wanted to come on and relive his time. Dear Matt, thank you for contacting my client about Meet the Challenge. I'm sorry to disappoint, but it is not the right project for Philip at this juncture. <laughs> we appreciate your interest. Regards, Wendy. So I had another go at Persuade. It was just to come and have a trip down he, memory he's lane. become Frank Sinatra now. With Peter Bannister. So I had another go at Persuade again. Hi, Matt. Thanks for the additional information. <laughs> my answer remains the same. <laughs> Regards, Wendy. So, I'm sorry to say, we, we, we know who he is, but he doesn't want to come on. Philip's become very grand, hasn't he? I mean, it was a big launch. Yeah. You know, he's made a great thing of that break we gave him in 1989, by the way, in 89, Birmingham. I saw, yeah. And uh, he's obviously sort of reached great heights and doesn't want to look back. Thank look you very back. much, Philip. He's got post-politics stress disorder, <laughs> like most of us. So, uh, we have got, in, in Danny, we have got one cruise liner entertainer. Uh, to make do with. Um, uh, do you sing, Danny? No, I'm glad to say that I don't. Good. Uh, we've also <laughs> had this uh, from Paul Decker of Pinner. Do you know Paul Decker, Daddy? No, I don't. I don't know no, Paul Decker. Very right. close to the well. community. I thought you Pinner. knew everyone in Pinner. <laughs> uh, I do think Peter, who has a mellifluous, mellifluous speaking voice, Ooh. which complements very well Polly's dulcet tones and Danny's baritone sound, needs singing lessons, lessons pronto after the closing offensive noise at the end of the recent <laughs> podcast. Can I just point out that yeah. when I was in primary school, I sang the solo of In the Bleak Midwinter on a Decca recording of Christmas carols by the Hampstead Garden Suburb Primary School Choir. So thank well, you, well, mate. That, that's, 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 the next, that's my next week uh, <laughs> on eBay sorted. Is that true? It is true. There we are. Whereas you famously, Polly, were... Kicked out of two school choirs? Two different schools, two different yeah. school choirs. I, I was kept in one uh, where we sang at Gloucester Cathedral, a production of Simpkin and the Tailor of Gloucester, but I was in the choir, but I was told to mouth <laughs> and not, not, not sing. Good. Well, that's um, that's sort of the, the, the sort of last week's business uh, revisited. Let's take a look then at what we're going to focus on uh, this week. Um, dissent and how you deal with troublemakers and plotters. 
and do how you deal with them particularly you know the closer you get to an election everyone says divided parties don't win elections uh, first of all then Rishi Sunak under a lot of pressure from his, within his party net migration at a record high his new home secretary James Cleverly not talking as tough as his predecessor uh, there's there's talk of of rebels backing amendments uh, over leaving the ECHR. Um, Danny, does he need to accommodate his angry MPs, or can he ride it out? And actually, is there an advantage into sort of being seen to stand up to to troublemakers? I don't think it helps to have just a, a division in a political party. So there's nothing you can really do about that that makes it better. But the reason that people have a division in a party is not just because of the issues. It's because they're trying to position themselves for when the party wins or loses an election. Uh, not just in the explicit way that uh, you have running for leadership elections, although that's certainly one of the forms of it. But in a general way, uh, they don't want themselves to feel they're responsible for the decisions the parties are making. So if the party isn't doing well, they can say to their friends, well, I did advise them to do something different. So oddly, the most important thing that you can do as a leader uh, when you get a division is to tack towards what you think will help you win an election, because that will reduce the incentive to individuals to divide themselves from you. So often when you're being advised, for example, by someone on, say, the left of the Labour Party to move towards the left, the best thing that you can do is whatever you think will help you win. You can watch that with Keir Starmer. The party is pulled towards him partly by his uh, election victory. And I always felt with with Peter that, that one of the big things that he did for the right of the Labour Party was basically provide them with victory and therefore make people like Robin Cook move towards Tony Blair just because uh, the incentive was to be in government to support the leadership. So it's it's contradictory. You're, you're pulled by somebody advising you to move towards a particular position on ideological grounds, but actually the right thing to do is to move in the direction you think will win an election, which may be the opposite direction to the, to the piece of advice you're getting. So you can reduce yeah. dissent, weirdly, by moving in the opposite direction to the dissenters. And then, um, Peter, Danny mentions uh, Keir Starmer, because he also had his own troubles a couple of weeks ago with uh, rebels backing the amendment calling for a ceasefire in the in the Middle East. Actually, he saw there was a position of strength to be made from, from sacking lots of front benches. I mean, he's only just got round to replacing them all, uh, but he has now done that. Um, but do you think he's now emerged from that, that process stronger, despite actually, two weeks ago, not persuading dozens of his own MPs to do what he wanted? Yes, he's operating the uh, the, the Peter principle uh, of uh, <laughs> politics, which is, uh, if in doubt, uh, do what's right rather than what's popular uh, in your uh, party because that's where the public are going to end up. And I think the public see that, you know, negotiating, trying to negotiate a ceasefire uh, with a prescribed terror organisation that have absolutely no interest in uh, laying down their rockets and their bombings and their terror activities, um, and then turning round to the Israelis when Hamas refused to do that and saying, well, you've got to have a unilateral ceasefire anyway and just let Hamas get away 
you know, celebrating their victory is not the right thing to do, I'm afraid. It's horrible, it's ghastly, it's just a tragic, tragic situation. But I think most people in the country would would see that you've got to uh, realise you've got to see this through. Now, that doesn't give carte blanche to uh, the Israelis, obviously, but I think that what Starmer did uh, was really, really important. And I think it marked, if I may say so, uh, a departure from what characterised his first year in office when he was trying to reunify the party after the Corbyn era, when he was trying to bring everyone together, when he thought that, you know, perhaps the Corbynistas, the hard left, could be reconciled to his leadership and we should all sort of, you know, form a ring, hold hands and sing Kumbaya uh, and be happy ever after. Well, what saw that off was a calamitous defeat for the Labour Party in his leadership in the Hartlepool by-election, mm. obviously very close to my heart. And what he decided to do after was not make you know, unity the central objective of his leadership, but doing what was right, getting the right policies in place and facing down those who were opposing him uh, uh, from the left and from the Corbynista, the remnants of mm. the Corbynista wing. And I think he's built strength, electoral strength, uh, on that ever since. Well, there's a chicken and egg thing, though, isn't there, Polly? Does, you, does your strength come from uh, being in the, being ahead in the polls, or does being ahead in the polls give you that, that strength? The, the, the Keir Starmer is in a position, when you are 20 points ahead of the polls, you can take these tough decisions and face down your rebels in a way that... Rishi Sunak can't because he's got a load of people who are worried about losing their seats. He doesn't have the same sort of authority to say, well, my plan is clearly working. So actually, the calculation about do you, you know, do whack-a-mole with your rebels or do you try to accommodate them slightly comes from how you're doing in the polls. That's the thing with politics, isn't it? Is that power accumulates. It has a sort of gravitational pull. If you're strong enough to suppress dissent, that can help you to... Uh, to do as I think Peter and Danny are sort of saying the same thing actually, which is moving towards what's right, as Peter's words, or what's going to win you an election, in Danny's words, is the same thing. It's can you appeal to the centre ground, uh, the kind of the moderate uh, public opinion, which are the people that you need to actually win an election, um, and and. The challenge is you have to have enough strength to be able to do that, and I guess a leader over time starts to accumulate that strength, um, and and they can then use the suppression of dissent to appeal to the voters, right? Like it, like David Cameron saying to his party, we need to stop banging on about Europe, helps to, yes, suppress some dissent, but also look strong, tell his centre-ground voters that actually I'm going to be a different kind of conservative. We know that, you know, New Labour was constructed around the word new, around the idea that we are going to change Clause 4, we are going to change what the party is. And so you need some conflict with your party in order to be able to tell the story new, that's going to win you the election. New, new Labour was built the, around a, a, a bit of a philosophy, which is that clarity of strategy and clarity of purpose and direction is more important yeah. than party unity. And that was very central to New Labour. We can come back to that and discuss it because it, that is the fault line, actually, that divided Blair and Brown during the New Labour years, I can, I can explain. But I, I think that what Polly says is important, you know, occupying a centrist position and fighting an election from that, either leading to the left or the right, uh, is the best electoral uh, strategy. But what's even more fundamental than that in winning an election is strength versus weakness. 
And yeah. that's about leadership. I mean, I think famously both Thatcher and Blair basically were lead and decide prime ministers. And I remember Blair on occasion saying to me, you know, when you decide, you also divide. Yeah. Uh, and when you divide a party, uh, you've got to make sure that you prevail, that you, that you win, that you persuade and you take people with you. Uh, and the minority who, who dissent are prepared to accept that uh, and let the majority and the leader lead. And the reason why this is very important is because I think the moment a leader of a political party starts showing fear uh, towards dissent and those who are rebelling in the ranks, then the public get a clear whiff of that fear. They see that leader weak rather than strong, and at which point he or she is dead in the water. And that's the, that's the thing, well, isn't it, um, Danny? Is it, it depends whether you are coming from a, a position of strength or weakness as to whether or not you emerge from a, a yes. standoff with your rebels in hearts or otherwise. Exactly. You have to win these battles if you pitch them. That's that's uh, critical. So uh, obviously what mattered about Clause 4, of the Clause 4 thing that Tony Blair did, was that ultimately he won. Polly made a very good point in distinguishing between what Peter and I had said, where I said uh, you move towards what wins you the election. Peter said you move towards what's right. Uh, and there, there is obviously a gap between those two things. Um, sometimes you what you believe to be right uh, isn't actually what the public think. Uh, and one of the issues that I think Labour will find that to be true of is on immigration, actually, where the, the public will be to the right of where the party is. And part of that gap is filled, as Peter suggested, by just showing strength. In other words, you show resolve, you show clarity, uh, you you do what you think to the, the public can see that you're sincere and that you're firm. That does help a lot, but it doesn't fill the whole gap. There sometimes is a real dilemma when you have a position and the public doesn't share it. Possibly uh, at, at later stages in the Iraq war, Tony Blair had that, uh, that, that problem. And they're, I think, the most tricky issues for you to solve. And if you want to hear the rest of the episode of how to Win an Election with Peter Manson, Polly McKenzie and Daniel Finkelstein. Just search How to Win an Election wherever you're listening to this. Up next is the art of the parliamentary sketch. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. I will make it absolutely clear, Madam Deputy Speaker, for the avoidance of doubt, with no ambiguity, I did not, would not... Then what are you calling me, sir? (laughs) That was... James Cleverley in the Commons on his first outing as Home Secretary. Well, uh, watching him with his beady eyes from the press gallery on almost his first outing as the Times' new sketch writer was Tom Peck, who writes today, the brand new Home Secretary spent the majority of his debut at the dispatch box staring into the middle distance with his lips curled down at the corners, looking like a bearded, sad face emoji. <laughs> uh, which is a great line. And I'm delighted that Tom Peck uh, joins me now to discuss the art of the political sketch. Tom, how are you? I'm very good. I'm very, very pleased to be here in general, in the building generally, and extremely pleased to be in Mission Control, Matcholi Central. Very Thank good. There, but yeah, flatter you'll get you over <laughs> Um Just give us a sense, first of all, then, when you, because you were at The Independent before. Yep. Now you're at The Times. Do you have a different seat in the press gallery? Uh, well, when I first wandered into my first day eight years ago at The Independent, I got told that the Independent's outgoing sketchwriter used to sit there in number 93. So I have always sat in number 93, and I'm still in number 93 now. Is that um, because you haven't been replaced? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, they used to... Well, you, I mean, you will probably know this. Like, in the, there, there did used to be sort of like, this is where people sit, and if yeah. you sat in someone's seat, whoa, heaven forfend. Yeah, yeah. But I think the COVID years kind of put pay to that and your press gallery seems to be a lot emptier than it used to be. And I suppose a lot of the time when you're sketching, it's not just, it's not all about PMQs when the gallery's full. A lot of the time it's parliamentary questions or backbench debates when bluntly there are plenty of seats in the oh, press gallery. definitely. And actually quite often, um, well, because when, when I first started it was 2015 and even, there, even for Prime Minister's questions, the star attraction was Jeremy Corbyn. So people tend to sit where they get the best view of who they want to take the mickey out of, effectively. So quite often, you'll sit in one place and then go around to the other side for the next bit. Like especially with the with the autumn statement last week, you start you start by looking at um, who's the chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, <laughs> <laughs> and then you go around and look at um, Rachel Rees for the reply for the other side, exactly. And also to see what the back because you, know, you want to see what the back benches yeah, faces yeah, yeah, look like when they're when they're speaking. Uh, so let's let's talk a bit about what a sketch is. Uh, and how they came about. They start in the early 18th century when uh, there were restrictions on reporting what went on in the Commons. There was worries that if, if what was reported might encourage grandstanding and That's showboating right. speeches. Yeah, well, it, the same debate obviously happened in about 200 years later when they were arguing about whether or not to bring TV cameras yeah. into the Commons because that would encourage people to quite literally play to the gallery. Yeah. Um, and they did let them in. And you know, originally... A very long time ago, yeah, you couldn't directly quote words that MPs said in the House of Commons because it you know, would encourage them to you know, see that see the newspaper as their uh, as their port of call rather than to engage in meaningful debates. Um, and so, naturally, if you tell a load of journalists that they can't take the if they can't quote what these people are saying, they will be inclined to take the Mickey out of them. <laughs> and so, you had to give a flavour, a sense of what was going on, and then you would sort of turn people into these grandiose, flowery characters. And it's, very, it's not like that anymore, because obviously you can quote them, although I've been doing it for quite a long time, and I, the number of times I've actually bothered to quote anyone is, Direct is, is extremely, quotes, is extremely yeah, rare, yeah, yeah. mainly because I can't think of many times that anyone said anything worth being directly quoted. And it's about painting a picture rather than, the, you know, because the, the quotes are probably in the news story. Um, well, let's speak to someone, let's speak to someone who, I don't think he was there in the 18th century, but he wasn't far off. <laughs> uh, Matthew Paris was a sketch writer of the Times from 1988 to 2001. Is that a record stretch, Matthew? I, 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 it's a pretty good stint, yeah. but then uh, Andrew Ronsley 
was a sketch writer for a long time, Simon Hoggart. Quentin Letts has been a sketch writer for years and years and years. Yeah, we so- don't mention him now. <laughs> <laughs> so, Matthew, what was your, what's your approach to what was your approach to uh, sketch writing? How how has it changed over the years? Do you think? I, I don't think it has changed at all over the years, and I'm in, in, enjoying Tom's uh, sketches, incidentally. No, Thanks very I, much. <laughs> you are there basically uh, to have a bit of a laugh. Sometimes you you can you can make a comment. Uh, sometimes you might have something helpful to say about the way people are behaving or or about the demeanour of a a member of parliament. Sometimes it's just a a bit of a laugh, a a bit of a joke. And occasionally something quite grave happens. You know, there's a terrible train crash and the Secretary of State uh, makes a a statement. And and there you you don't make jokes. You you, you just try Mm. to give a sense of the atmosphere of the place. So I think you, you just play it by ear. Um, let's because uh, you we were talking there, um, uh, Tom, about you know the argument about bringing in cameras and whether or not once you can see it and clip it on social media, is the art of a sort of a written description of what's going on uh, going to die out? But in fact, this is uh, this is uh, here. This is a former Time sketch writer, Anne Treneman, uh, talking to me about why the introduction of cameras to the chamber didn't kill off the idea of the parliamentary sketch. Even with the additional TV coverage now from the press gallery, you still get an unparalleled view, and you see things that you'll never see on TV. And, you know, PMQs is very much an atmosphere. And that's also completely part of sketch writing. You know, you don't get that on TV. You you hear a lot of shouting, but you do not get the, the true electricity um, or the somberness on serious occasions. Um, it's, it, is a fan, it is fantastic theatre. There's just no other word for it. <laughs> and Matthew, it's quite often about the bits which aren't on camera. Uh, whether it's the face of someone, you know, mm. on a back bench while a minister's speaking, or we should probably discuss Betty Boothroyd's shoe. Yes, I, I, I devoted an entire sketch to Betty Boothroyd's shoe. It was a very, very hot day. She she was wearing those sort of tight court shoes that uh, I suppose a, a lady speaker wears. And, um, and it was a particularly boring debate that afternoon. And I just noticed her slowly with the toe of one shoe removing, loosening the heel of the other until eventually <laughs> it came off. Then with, with, the, with the now bare exposed toe of the other removing the second, she just couldn't <laughs> keep her shoes on any longer. And, you, and, you know, Tom will know this. Uh, th- it, these little things are often just as interesting as what is supposed to be the main debate. You, you, you see, for instance, a, a minister desperately needing help. And from the little box where civil servants sit, you see a little note being passed urgently down towards the minister who doesn't know what the answer to a question is until, until he or she get, gets the note. And those things are, are, are great fun. Yeah. I would... I would just add this, that I don't entirely agree with Anne. Well, she's quite right that only a sketch can pick these things up. But the problem is no one is very interested or as interested any longer in anything that's happening in the chamber. To that extent, 
I, I think the parliamentary sketch is in danger of, of becoming an anachronism. And I think what has kept it going is just the quality of the writing of, of so many of our national newspaper sketch writers over the year. If that quality were to subside, I don't think anybody would feel that, 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 that it would leave a gap that needed to be filled. Um, well, what That's I a lot would, of pressure on you, Well, well <laughs> I'll be all right. Well, what, what I would say to that is I would say over the last eight years, I have, I don't know how many sketches I've written, but plenty. I would say a healthy majority of them are not about what's, are not based in the House of Commons. Partly that's because there's been two elections, there's been a referendum, and whenever there's an election, you are running around the country sketching this speech yeah. or that speech. Or you'll be sketching Rishi Sunak. Rishi Sunak would do a speech on net zero in the Downing Street briefing room. And actually, that tradition of like, like Bessie Boothroyd's shoes being a great example, I would say I haven't actually done all that much of that. I mean, I, I know that Anne Treneman, for example, has written, she has said she's written more than one sketch just on Alistair Darling's eyebrows, <laughs> but um, <laughs> solely on the eyebrows. But um, in my experience, partly I think because I started in 2015, I've just had all the chaos years. But it's interesting, it's, it's evolved from parliamentary sketch to political sketch. Oh, definitely, and yeah. And it's a sort of the, the, the colour piece of the day. Did you do one once on the lorries? On oh, the way yeah, to yeah. Did my you go there? My greatest hit, yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Um, some, the, 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 the news editor had been sent this advert from, from the Department of Transport via Chris Grayling to, for lorry drivers to come to a disused airfield in Kent and stage a, a fake traffic jam. Like 50 lorries had to drive That's to Dover it. and back to prove that we were ready for no-deal Brexit, that we could handle it. And I just got up at the... It was like January the 6th. It was pitch dark. It was my first day back after Christmas, freezing cold. And I was just waiting for the sun to come up over this airfield, just hoping that these lorries would be there. And there they were. <laughs> but there weren't enough of them. They, they organised a fake traffic jam and not enough lorries turned up. Well, a, a, to, a, a to organise... A, if you want to do a fake traffic, traffic jam, you need more than 50 lorries, otherwise yeah. you're not going to prove the point that you want to make. Yeah. And if you've only booked 50 and only about 38 arrive, <laughs> and that, that, you're in even more trouble. And the whole point was that if they got delayed by 10 minutes each, like 10 minutes plus 10 minutes plus 10 minutes plus 10 minutes, which is how long they were going to have to be checked for in a, in a no-deal Brexit world... Yeah then you end up with, like, tailbacks going to, you know, the south of France or what have you. <laughs> um, and then this fake traffic jam where no-one had to expect anything, that set off half an hour late anyway for reasons <laughs> nobody could possibly understand. Um, I mean, that, that was absolutely glorious um, yeah. and very, very, very far but away. But a long from way from the House of Commons. A long way from the House So apart from looking at Lindsay Hoyle's shoes, Matthew, any advice for Tom? <laughs> um, steer clear of nipples. I... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Oh. I probably got into more trouble, more trouble over that sketch than than I who's, have over who's any other. Who, I just noticed who, who's nipples. <laughs> when a speaker is is on their feet in the House of Commons, be it a, a man or a woman, and if they're wearing a thin shirt or blouse, it's very often the case that the nipples become erect, and this perhaps <laughs> interested me more than than it should have. And I wrote a whole sketch about it, and then had to apologise to to Madam Speaker afterwards. <laughs> Some top advice. Uh, yeah. Thank you for that, Matthew. Uh, Matthew Paris, uh, former Times uh, sketch writer. Of course, you can still read him every week in his notebook and uh, and his Saturday column as well. Tom, how how do you approach it? Well, just take us through a bit of your day. We'll talk. We'll talk in a little bit of your sort of life and times in the gallery. But how, what's your your process? How do you decide what to go to? When do you start writing? When yeah. you've got it done by? I always kind of struggle when I'm 
asked to talk about the sort of art of sketch writing, if you like, because it's not that complicated. <laughs> you, um, you get up in the morning, sometimes you even look at it the night before, you have a look at what's around, you see what is most likely to be amusing, you go to it and you try to extract some comedic value from it. I mean, the previous guests you've just had on would be much better place to answer that question because they had to really—they spent a lot of time really having to draw blood from a stone, which yeah. which sketching can be a bit like that. But I have just done—I mean, I on my first day in 2015, um, John McDonnell threw. Um, Chairman Mao's red book over the dispatch box at George Osborne. In fact, we've got that. So this yeah. is going back eight years. Eight years ago, when Tom first arrived in Westminster, there was the autumn statement. Uh, so that's George Osborne and John McDonnell, and this happened. To assist Comrade Osborne in his dealings with his newfound comrades, I brought him along Mao's little red book. <laughs> I thought it would come in handy for him in his new relationship. So the Shadow Chancellor literally stood at the dispatch box and read out from Mao's little red book. And look, it's his personal signed copy. So presumably you felt that was a gift. You thought it was always going to be like that. Well, it was, I think it was only the second or third time I'd ever even been in the House of Commons at all. And, but I've obviously always been like a political nerd and I've worked in newspapers for a long time prior to that. But on day one, I was just, blimey, that is, that is a bit much. And also I couldn't really have hoped for better. But then, <laughs> but then my, but I, felt, so I found my first piece and I sort of thought maybe it's just going to peak on day one. But then, of course, I'm no, unbeknownst to anyone really, were seven years, well, eight years of just rolling chaos, which is, which is still ongoing. And it has been... Go on, sorry. No, I was going to say, because what's interesting there is that it was quite good lines by both of them. Um, and people are, but I write my Saturday uh, column, people are saying, oh, you mean Boris Johnson must be such a gift, you know, or Donald Trump. And actually, people who make jokes themselves don't lend themselves to writing about them in the same way. Because actually, what, basically, You're totally you prefer right, yeah. you'd rather make your own jokes than, than, a, than write a piece which hangs on other people's. Totally, you're absolutely correct, yes. And that is why, in my opinion, the glory years were the May years. Because, the, the, A, it was just pure politics. Like, it was, it, we've got to get Brexit done, but we don't have a majority. How are we going to do it? So it's just rolling chaos day after day after day after day after day. And it's not really about anything other than politics, which is fine by me. Whereas, you know, COVID was really a health story more than a political story and was an extremely sad story, yeah. and that didn't make life easy. And then with, with Boris Johnson... I mean, you can't parody Boris Johnson because he's already doing his own parody act of himself, I would say. So you, and you'll never beat him. But what the great gift of, of the Johnson years was just the never-ending chaos. I mean, if someone's going to come into the House of Commons and say, there were no parties, there were parties, but I didn't know about them. Actually, I was at the parties. <laughs> then, but, I, but I also didn't know, but I didn't know they were parties. And then I definitely didn't just... mislead you with the first bit. <laughs> yeah. But I think we've got a, a clip of Boris Johnson base, uh, dishing up what sketch writers want. There's only one chlorinated chicken that I can see in this house, and he's on that bench. The problem with the Labour Party today, Mr Speaker, is that he's a lawyer, not a leader. He must be out of his tiny mind, Mr Speaker. And in Caracas... And I think he's Caracas, uh, Mr. Speaker. I've always loathed the Caracas joke for the Tories mm. because it required so much to get there. So it starts off, Jeremy Corbyn uh, is left-wing and likes Venezuela. Uh, 
De- which is very bad. <laughs> and it's, people have a hot, tough time there. But okay, l- lodge that in your mind. Caracas is in Venezuela. Caracas also sounds a bit like crackers. So if you just say, he is Caracas, everyone's going to go, oh yes, Jeremy Cr- uh, Corbyn is very left-wing and he wants to turn us into Venezuela. It's just so many leaps. Very much so. But that's, Johnson did have many a good line, but yeah. he also had some really, really, really <laughs> bad ones. I was never... A, he, what he used to call Keir Starmer a, 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 a lawyer in an Islington suit or something, didn't he? What on earth is an Islington suit? But here, <laughs> but here we are still saying it. Um, and So he, like... Sometimes he would, he would make, he made our lives easy because the events were so farcical and also he was just relentlessly attacked by his former chief of staff, which obviously made life quite easy for us too. But may, the people who are the biggest gift are the people who have got like, um, you know, bathos. I, like Ed Miliband, Theresa May, who they want to get something done, but they haven't quite got the means by which to make it happen. So you sort of feel sorry for them. In, in just in the Ed Miliband, Theresa May, these people are exactly like, you know, Steto and Son <laughs> or Del Boy. You know, they're never, they're never going to get there, but they're going to try. Um, and there's also, obviously, you get the sort of cast of characters of the backbenchers, the ones who who maybe not so well known, and actually they don't get on the front pages unless they get themselves in trouble. Uh, but uh, they're the sort of people who'll be keeping you busy. Yeah, well, we in 2019, the, tw- the class of 2019 provided the most golden um, cast of you know minor characters that you could ever wish for. You know, the the Gunthers and the Janices type thing. But we were going to lose them all, I would think. I mean, I'm not making any big political predictions, but I think you're. Your, your Tories who won Red Bull seats for the first time ever and were probably quite surprised, like yeah. your Brendan Clark Smiths, your Jonathan Gullises, um, possibly even Lee Anderson, they've been a great gift and they're going to go. But the, the, problem, the, the thing that is keeping me awake at night is worrying about who's going to replace them because there will, there will be, be other... Some, there'll be a new intern, they take a while will, to find There them. will, but... I mean, Labour have won, what, about eight by-elections in the last year? And as far as I can tell, the same blokes won all of them. <laughs> um, but I, I'm not really looking forward to that one. But, I mean, Johnny Mercer, um, didn't he describe one of them as... Has he described them as the in-betweeners? Yes. Which I have to say, he took a lot of grief for, but that is a good line, and you may even find me stealing that in a year's time. I don't know. That was the guy who won in... Yeah, and they just... Uh, Sel- that's, yeah, Keir Bates. Yeah, 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 yeah. But we'll never remember because he's exactly the same as the guy who won in... Um, whenever it was, the one yeah, last yeah, the, week. The, the, the one. Um, in fact, so here is a roundup of some of your favourite backbenchers who, uh, who you might be missing. Through Michael Fabricant, who's looking rather orange today. Michael Fabricant. Oh dear, I'm very worried you're saying I'm looking orange, Mr Speaker. It makes me think of Donald Trump. The honourable gentleman is now properly dressed. Jonathan Gullis. Hey, Madam Deputy Speaker, the jacket is now on. Apologies. I'm sure it might be possible to provide the Leader of the House with a pillow to make him more comfortable, as he seems to be struggling during this debate. The European Union produces its laws in a form of gogledygook. Is anybody from Bradford in here? Would you want to get there quicker? And just make out you, you don't make out you know who I am. You know I'm the candidate, but not a friend. All right. <laughs> so that was Michael Fabricant, Jonathan Gullis, Lee Addison, uh, and Jacob Rees-Mogg. Um, uh, Jacob, Jacob, be smart. What when you moving from the Independent to the Times? Do you feel like you've got new targets to that you to 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 go after? Have you been reading the comments underneath? Have readers been telling you who um, you should or shouldn't leave off? Um, well, I've always had a very much golden rule about not reading the comments, but the Times is a bit different because there is a barrier to entry. Yeah, um, you have to use yeah, your real yeah, name. Yeah, yeah, we know who you are, and, and it costs you some money as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I have read them, but they haven't really. Um, What's, what I hadn't read, because I've, I've done three, the first two tended to be 
in the comments below my first two, people were sort of saying whether or not they were good or bad. Yeah. But number three was about James Cleverly, and I didn't really get a look in, in the comments. It's just 250 <laughs> comments having a go at James Cleverly, and yeah. um, I almost prefer it that way, really. Um, what do you make of that if we are getting a Labour government, which, you know, anything could happen, but that's where the polls look. Um, who we on the Labour side matches? Because actually, you're right, that the last five, six, seven, eight years, with this sort of never-ending supply of your, your Jacob Rees-Mogg and James Cleverley and Suella Braverman and all of that. Exactly. Is Labour, do Labour have the same potential for a sketch? Well, the obvious answer, I mean, I hope it changes, is no. I mean, I, I've, when I watch the Autumn Statement response from Rachel Reeves, I, I don't think there's, even in, in all the years, which were, you know, eight years, nearly ten years, that I've been around, I don't think I've seen anyone who is a more mortal threat to our art than Rachel Reeves. <laughs> I just don't know what we're going to do. I mean, I was worried about Yvette Cooper a few years ago. I mean, <clears throat> Yvette Cooper is manna from heaven compared to what we're going to get from Rachel Reese. But I wonder if she's doing it on purpose. I mean, but there are people who've been around in Labour for ages. Like, I don't think I've ever, for example, sketched a word, one word of David Lammy, and that will presumably have to change. I'm not quite sure how I'm going to handle that. Um, but there, I get, what, what I do think will be good, and I think people have underestimated, is I think Keir Starmer will be an eminently sketchable Prime Minister because I think he will be quite Mayish in the sense that he will not... You know how, like, I mean, it's been written by a million times columnists, how centre-left parties have to govern with no money and they can't get anything done. And all these terrible problems that are going to sweep them in, they're not really going to have the tools to deal with them. And there's going to be a lot of um, not really being able to answer the question about why everything's still terrible. And Starmer is not a natural um, communicator anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I think, I think you'll have a lot of... I think he will become really quite Mayish, and that's fine by me, because he's not, as you were saying, he's not someone who is going to try and do the jokes for you at all. So that... And actually, some of those characters we were just here, probably you know, your John McDonald's, Diane Abbott's, if she's, if she's allowed back in. You know, the, the, actually, those Labour backbenchers, you might have to worry about you know, Lee Anderson being gone because what's going on the Labour backbenchers and the characters who are putting them under pressure about why aren't you finding money for this? Why have you decided to do that? It just sort of completely flips it. Yeah, although the trouble is those guys have already had their moment in the sun in the yeah, Corbyn yeah. years. And that was what was so great about the May because Because, I mean, every human being... Don't want to sort of peel back the wizard's sleeve to wither too far, the wizard's curtain too far. But like, everyone has their own um, political preferences. But in the, in the May years, everywhere you looked, everything was terrible. <laughs> um, so that was uh, that was brilliant. Yeah. Um, and Starmer's lot, um, will will Diane Abbott and will Jeremy will Jer Corbyn McDonald and so on, they will try and put pressure on Starmer. But what is very unusual. Is that those that wing of the Labour Party is all? They I mean they they had to go at Blair too. Yeah, yeah. But when Starmer comes along, they would have had their moment in the sun, and it went very, very badly. So, quite so hard I'm not for them sure their that, attacks yeah, will yeah. go that well. So what are you sketching today? Well, currently, Jenny Harry's at COVID, yeah. which is which we she's one for the one for the purists, but it should be good because she, I mean. If she'd been a politician in the early years of COVID, though some of her quotations would live long in the memory. So it, I'm quite it, sure it's how... amazing if you put it all together, everything she yeah, said yeah. about masks and so on. I just, finally, I should have asked Matthew about this when, uh, when he was on, but I remember speaking to Matthew Paris and he said when he first joined the, the Times to write the sketch, he was at a party conference. I think I remember, it, may, it might have even been the Liberals or the Lib Dems. And he filed his first sketch on the first day. Uh, and then the next day, he didn't think there was anything worth sketching. He got a call late at night saying, where's your sketch? And he said, well, I didn't think there was anything worth sketching today. We're like, that's not how it works. No, it's not how it There's works. There's a hole to fill in the paper and, and you're going to fill it regardless of whether or not you thought it was... Is it, it, that's which actually, in a way, the job, being a reporter, 
is not the same. You know, if you're on a beat and there's nothing major in your patch, they'll say, well, we don't want anything from you because there's loads going on over there. But yeah, you're just, you've got to do something. That's the, definitely the hardest bit about the job because yeah. politics has many quiet days. And yeah. when you get up and you look about what's going on that day and you think, well, by the end of today, I'm going to have had to have written something funny about some something in here. And I really don't know what it's going to be. <laughs> but things pop up. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, it's not sketchable because there was no sort of vi- visual element to it. But who'd, who would have thought that at six o'clock yesterday... Um, Rishi Sunak's got to cancel cancel a meeting with the Greek Prime Minister because he doesn't want to talk about the Elgin marbles. Yeah, there's there's a, there's a sort of a, con, a clever clever sketch there if you if you need to. Yeah, but I mean, God, I've had days where it's like, you know, half past three. Oh, something's going to have to happen soon. Yeah. <laughs> that was Matthew Paris and Tom Peck there, and of course you can read them in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box, and if you want to get in touch. With any complaints or queries, email me, matt at times.radio. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.